your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to read uh, verses 13 through 21, but the sermon will actually only be on verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. And if you'll have your uh, bulletins ready, you'll notice where I have the scripture reference printed. Um, the scripture out of uh, 1 Peter one twenty four that I would like for us to read together at the end of that reading. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Let us uh, recite together, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this word that you've given to us, a sure and certain uh, way, Lord, for us to know what your will is for each and every one of our lives, Lord, and it reveals your glory to us. It reveals our need for you, Lord, and we desire to learn more of that this morning. Teach us, instruct us, illumine your word in our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So during preparation of this sermon, and especially going back and reviewing the first 12 verses uh, of 1 Peter, uh, the word of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, pricked my heart with this question or questions. What do I truly treasure the most? What are the things in this life that I'm most passionate about? What is at the top of my list that I'm passionate about? When it comes to this life, when it comes to spiritual things, am I too easily satisfied? Before we get into Peter, as I thought about those questions, or as the Lord prompted me and pricked me, Um, It brought me back to a few scriptures, one in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, and another, two other scriptures in Matthew 13, where Jesus says to his listeners, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 13, 44 and 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And again, the parable of the pearl of great value. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the passage, the one scripture we'll look at today will, that is our focus. We're going to actually go back and review those first 12 uh, verses in bullet point form and see what it is that excites us. What is it that we treasure? What is it that we love? What is, what is on the top of our mind from day to day? And this is not a call for you to quit your job and sell everything you have. You know, we live day to day. You know, but what are the things that motivate us? What are the things that, that, uh, that the Lord does in our life, the things that he gives us that are valuable, more valuable than anything else in our lives? C.S. Lewis said it like this. Our desires are not too strong regarding spiritual things, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the beach or at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, you know, that's, that's what the... As I was reviewing this, the Lord pricked my heart. I'm too easily pleased. I'm, you know, it's, I'm too easily distracted you know, by other things. And so by God's word today, we pray that the Lord will draw us to himself in his grace and grant to us and strengthen us that we may continue our walk in him. So... You know, as we begin to look at, at this verse, there, there are many other transitions in several other epistles that do what Peter is doing here. You know, and preachers love words like, therefore, but God, but you, so, likewise, finally, now, just to name a few from this one epistle here. It means something is about to be stated that is dependent on ideas or facts that have been just presented. In many cases, it follows indicative statements, statements of fact in the transition to imperative statements, statements that tell us to do something, that are calls to action that are based on all those statements of fact that we just read. In the New Testament, there are many instances of this presentation of facts regarding the fullness of God's grace at work through Christ toward us, in us, and for us. And if we believe the word of God and trust in those indicatives, those facts, those truths that are so carefully laid out for us, then we can obey the imperatives in faith as a result of the grace of God working in us. But if we try to just do the imperatives, the do's and the don'ts of the scripture, 
without truly knowing and resting upon the work of Christ on our behalf, we end up either being puffed up with pride and self-righteousness or we become downcast in our utter failures. For example, we take Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul is laying a foundation of facts, of theology, of doxology, of all the things that are true about those who are in Christ and about faith. He speaks in the beginning of that about Gentiles and Jews, how they were all sinners, how Abraham was justified by faith, how we have peace with God through faith, how we have been dead in Adam, but we're alive in Christ. We've been dead to sin, but now alive, but we now become dead to sin and alive to God and on and on until he gets to chapter 12. In chapter 12, now, he begins that transition with this similar word. I beseech ye therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice. Present yourselves a living sacrifice, your bodies, holy and acceptable God, which is your service of worship. Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 are all indicatives the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Paul, again, lays a foundation there. He speaks about thanksgiving and prayer. He teaches us in chapter 2 about grace through faith as the way that we are saved. He teaches us that we are one in Christ and that the mystery of the gospel is revealed. And in a prayer for spiritual strength in chapter 3. So there are three chapters of doctrinal instruction you know facts and things that we are to meditate on things about God's good news to us his provision for us the truth of his word and all of those things it's a foundation of grace that is laid down upon which we can now build by walking and growing in grace and holiness in the Lord and for example in chapter 4 of Ephesians Paul says, here's a familiar transition, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he says to do that with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing with one another in love. So today we begin, Peter's transition begins pretty early in his letter and just about everything from chapter 1 verse 13 on uh, our imperatives uh, for us. Uh, and so that's where we're going to begin. And the word therefore that we're looking at is that, you know, we could say for which cause, because of all these other things that I've just written to you in this letter, because of all those truths, because of all the gracious good news that I've given to you thus far, Peter says, for which cause or on this account or wherefore. You know, come, it's, a, it's an imperative that calls us. So since it's been three to five weeks between sermons, I'll summarize what Peter is referring to in verses 1 through 12. He writes, therefore, because in Christ we are. And you can begin each statement with we are. We are elect for obedience to Christ. We are sprinkled clean 
from all our sin by his blood. We are born again to a living hope of salvation and eternal life. We are heirs to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We are guarded through faith by God's power for salvation to be fully revealed in time. We are sustained by faith in God's faithful promises of provision in trials. We are enabled to give unhindered praise, honor, glory to Jesus at his revelation or his coming. What blessings he is giving us here. But, you know, like Mike Lindell says on TV, wait, there's more. There's more to come. Promised. We are promised the salvation of our souls, saved from hell, as we persevere in faith to the faithful one whom we cannot see. We are built up in this saving faith by the words, by the scriptures of the prophets, by the words of Jesus, and by the scriptures given to us to the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are blessed with the knowledge of God's love that even the angels of heaven long to comprehend. Oh God, may those truths be on top of mind. And I have to tell you, I you know, preached, you know, this is the seventh uh, sermon, I think, in the series, and how easily I forget my own sermons. How easily, you know, I, I have to go back and read and read and say, Lord, cause this to be, to be planted deeply in good soil. Lord, stir up, plow up the fallow ground that's in my heart. Break up the stony ground that's in my heart that these truths may sink in. Because as they do, and God promises that he will do that for you, then we can take the imperatives. We can walk in obedience we can grow in grace so churches that pursue you know we 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 pursue a a a a reformed understanding or biblical understanding of the christian life and we're always cautious to emphasize the grace of god working in our lives because we cannot take any credit for the saving faith in which we walk we also emphasize the work of sanctification and that it is a work of grace in us. It is a continuing, a gradual work that results in humility being worked in those who submit to it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 35, says, what is, ask the question, what is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new in the image of God. And we are made more and more able to become dead to sin and alive to righteousness. Uh, Dr. Ed Clowney, uh, I have a quote from him, but he's actually quoting a French commentator uh, with the name of Benetro. Without the indicative of what God does, the imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner, the victim of his illusions. It becomes a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. So, yes, we are called to grow in grace. We are called to do things. We are called, we are given imperatives, we are given commands that are based upon that grace of God working in our lives. Philippians 2 is uh, an example of, of Paul's challenge 
to the recipients of that letter in Philippi, where he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And how can he charge them to do that? Because he finishes the statement by reminding them, It is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action. Literally, what's written there, literally what's written there as we move from the indicative to imperative, the King James Version actually says it the best. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, people in that day would have readily understood what that meant. Uh, you know, but if we don't have a little bit of explanation, you know, it might be doubtful that we would understand what he's talking about there. But that phrase is used in other parts of the scripture. Jesus, when he's instructing his disciples in Luke chapter 12, he tells them, before he, he gives them a parable, he says, let your loins be girded. Let your loins be girded about. And then he goes into speaking about servants who are waiting for their master to come back. And he warns them to always be girded and ready for work, ready for action, ready to do something. Always be ready for the coming of the Lord. In Job 38.3, God says to Job, dress for action like a man. He's telling him to gird up his loins and be ready to work, to take action. I will question you and you make it known to me. In Jeremiah 1.17, in Jeremiah's call, the Lord says to Jeremiah, dress yourself for work or gird up your loins. Arise and say to them everything that I command you. So, what does this what does this mean? Well, you know, in in those Eastern cultures, they wore even the men wore long robes and stuff. And when they were ready to work or to walk or if they had to run or anything, they would pull up the robe between their legs, around their loins, and tie it around their waist or tuck it into a belt that they wore so they were ready to be able to do whatever activity they were called to do. I can't imagine, you know, Peter and the fishermen getting on the boat with their robes hanging down to their ankles. They would, you know, and and it talks about that that even uh, in, in the Gospel of John when the Lord is on the beach, it says Peter had to dress himself. So I don't know, they, you know, I'm not sure what they wore. But anyway, there's that picture, that picture of running a race, the picture of doing work, the picture of doing God's work, of obeying him and walking with him. And so we are to gird up the loins of our mind, gird up the loins of our mind, get things out of the way so that we can do the work you know, that we're called to do. So uh, Wayne Grudem says, the Old Testament background of those verses and the Gospel of Luke references above admonishes readers to be ready to see God work and to respond to him with instant obedience. Uh, the message, the message by Eugene Peterson, uh, 
writes this verse this way. So roll up your sleeves and put your mind in gear. So I think we get the point. You know, Peter is calling us to be ready to do something, to not just rest and sit down upon all the great doctrine that he's just given them, but taking that and then walking in obedience to the Lord. So he's saying we need to be like this in our minds. You know, uh, just to kind of maybe bring it down to our modern day. You know, if you're working out in your garden in the backyard, you typically, you know, the women are not going to be wearing their best, you know, Sunday long dress or anything. When you go to the health club, you're not dressed in a suit. You're dressed in your athletic workout wear. If you're a carpenter or whether you're a bookkeeper or an attorney or, you know, you do yard work, you know, whatever it is that you do, we always, as much as we can, try to dress to make ourselves uh, decent, to make ourselves comfortable, to make ourselves efficient in the work, in our vocations, you know, that we uh, perform from day to day. So we dress in a way to minimize hindrances and to maximize performance and comfort in order to achieve a goal. So we need to be like that in our minds regarding the word of God. And generally, as the word of God is open to us by the work of the Holy Spirit, it is through the mind first and then the affections and the will. The word mind that is used there is similar to the word uh, mind. It's related to the word that's used uh, for mind in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, where Paul admonishes his uh, readers, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I remember, you know, in going through school, sometimes, you know, you'd have a, uh, you know, a student who was uh, maybe not really studying, and, uh, you know, the teacher might point out, you know, and say, do you have a book? Yes, I have a book. You know, and he might point out to him, he says, well, you don't get what's in the book just by osmosis, by sleeping with it, you know, in your hand or your head, you know, resting on it. There is some action that you have to take. There is something that you have to do. And so these admonishments that come to us from the apostles are for us to be those who are working in the word of God. We're working with the intellect, with the mind, with the will, in our thoughts, in our feelings, our understanding. John Calvin makes a comment here. He says, Peter intimates that our minds are held entangled by the passing cares of the world and by vain desires so that they rise not upward to God. So think about the the parable of the the sower and the seed, the seed that falls on the ground amongst the thistles and thorns and they spring up and choke out the word. we we'll continue with Calvin. Whosoever then really wishes to have this hope, let him learn in the first place to disentangle himself from the world and gird up his mind that it may not turn aside to vain affections. Another exhortation. Hebrews chapter 12, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, you know, 
the writer of Hebrews has just given us all these chapters, you know, speaking about people who have walked in faith, especially chapter 11. There's a whole, you know, we can call it the hall of faith. Since we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight. Let's lay aside those things, those sins that cling so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So I know when Catherine runs half marathons and marathons, she doesn't have a backpack on her back or things, you know, they dress, they try to buy, you know, the the clothes with the material that weighs the least amount and that covers. Uh, So, you know, all of those things we think about that we're running a race, we're looking to Jesus, we're looking to all these promises that he gives to us. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And we look to him because Jesus did set his face like a flint toward his goal, which was to die on the cross for us and then be raised from the dead. He despised the shame. He counted the cost. And he is the founder and he is the perfecter. He's the one who finishes us. He's the one who starts us in the faith and he's the one who brings us to completion in the faith. And we look to him. So in all of these things that we talk about, you know, there are many different things in all of our lives that, that can be distractions. Some of those things uh, that are weights are not sin. They're just distractions. They're just time wasters. And so, you know, we don't try to bind your conscience as to what you do, you know, with your leisure time when you're not at work. We believe that, you know, whatever work you do, that that's God's vocation for you. And you're to do your work as unto him. But what we do with that other time when we have time to study and to read to pray to do the works of righteousness you know we don't try to bind your conscience other than what the scripture says you know that we are called to obedience to what the word of god says so what are the things what are the things in my life you know i got to thinking about things that easily distract me things that are really completely unnecessary and not really enjoyable you know they just distract me you know news uh facebook you know reading all the gossip you know all that stuff you know it's like all those little things that that take us away from that which is profitable for us so in that call in that call to gird up our minds we're also said we're also challenged with being sober-minded, being sober. The word sober there that she really does refer to not being drunk. Uh, and it's used, yes, literally for that, but also to be sober in our minds, to not uh, allow our minds to be drunken with all the excess and all these other distractions that would keep us from growing in sanctification in the Lord. We're to be calm and collected in the spirit. We're to be temperate and not ruled you know by we're not ruled by intense passions passion are good in a certain sense but we're not to be ruled by intense passions that draw us away from Christ we're to be circumspect we're to be humble in the way that we walk with the Lord being sober minded being sober minded in a biblical sense brings about it's done in humility and it brings about humility in our lives. 
Paul says in Romans 12, 3, By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with a sober judgment, a realistic evaluation, you know, of where you are, a humble evaluation of where you are in Christ, and each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So each one of us has strengths and weaknesses. Each one of us has gifts that God has called us to use in the church. And Paul says, think about those things. He says, don't exalt yourself in it, but be sober-minded in those things that God has given you that are good for the body of Christ, that are good to grow in sanctification. Then do those according to the measure of faith that God has given to us. Being sober-minded involves being focused. 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 8. Paul writes to those that are in Thessaloniki, let us not sleep, as others do, but let's keep awake. Let's keep aware. Let us be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be is the word again, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, you don't put on helmets and breastplates uh, to sit around and do nothing. You're going to battle. You're doing something with what God has given us with the weapons of our warfare. Being sober-minded involves clear thinking. Paul admonishes Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. So he's telling uh, Timothy, be wary, be self-conscious, be aware of all the things that are around you, be clear thinking, and that clear thinking comes you know, in what he was called to do, the work of an evangelist, by being in the word of God. Peter also writes a little bit further in this chapter. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. So, what does he mean by that? Are we praying? We're praying to the Lord. Are our prayers distracted by so many other things that take away our desire to pray? And, and I have to confess, making the time to pray is often some of the most difficult work in following the Lord. We are so easily distracted. And, and I'm not always successful in doing what, what I know I ought to be doing. But once we yield to the work of God, once we yield to the work of his spirit, then you know, you know that as you come before the Lord and you cry out before him, you know, with all of your heart, that he hears that prayer. So be controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. And also in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. I think y'all know how to finish this one for our adversary, the who? The devil prowls about doing something like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We're to be clear-minded, folks. We're not, you know, we're not playing religion. 
we're not playing church. We are in a real and a true battle with the enemy of our souls, the devil. We don't go about looking for the devil to be under every bush, but he is there. He is the tempter. He is the father of lies. And he is the one who seeks who seeks to distract us and to uh, draw us aside, not necessarily all the time to grossly sinful things, but just distractions that keep us out of the word of God, that keep us out of prayer before the Lord. So, so Christian sobriety is glorious, not only when it comes to deal with real alcohol, but also, you know, in our spiritual lives to be sober in a Christian way. And why are we doing this? And what is the thing that Peter commands us to do? What is his imperative? Gird up the loins of your mind, being sober while you're doing that, and then set your hope fully. Set your hope perfectly on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he points us back to verse 3. Peter points us back to verse 3. where he declares, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because by his great mercy, by his mercy upon us, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, it's it's a worn out thing, but... You know, as we say, you, you never see a, a U-Haul trailer behind the funeral hearst. So, you know, what things are most important to us today? What things are most important to us to walk with the Lord? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And again, as we looked at Hebrews 12 a little bit earlier, You know, by faith, by faith we have that which we hope for. It is a steadfast hope. It is not wishful thinking. We are to run that race with patience because of that steadfast hope that we will finish the race. And unlike, you know, competitive races of today, you know, where you have first and second and third place winners that get awards or ribbons or trophies or things like that, there is a crown of life that awaits all those who finish. It's not who finishes first or who finishes last. There is a crown of life who awaits all those who finish this race. Clowney, Edmund Clowney says again, the certainty of our hope has a remarkable effect, effect upon our lives. Hoping Christians cannot live carelessly, seeking self-indulgence, and pleasure. And he's not saying that in a prohibitive sense. He's saying that if we have hope, that real hope in us, it's going to be working in us and and we're not going to want to live carelessly. We're not going to want to be continually seeking self-indulgence and wasteful pleasure. So brothers and sisters, the God, the grace of God is already at work. In our lives, we are saved by grace through faith. We are sanctified. We are set apart. We are being sanctified continually if we submit to it. 
We are brought through this life by God's grace. And remember, this is a letter that is written to those who are enduring trials due to their profession of faith in Christ. So this is a letter of hope. Peter's called the apostle of hope. This is a letter to encourage believers who are under true persecution, who are under true ostracization or, you know, or, well, the modern word, they're being canceled. You know, maybe their jobs, maybe their status in the community is being challenged. And we see, we see some of that, you know, beginning to happen more often now. But we are called to be steadfast. Wayne Grudem says, first, gird up your minds, get ready to think on God's words and obey him at once. And then, while we continue to be spiritually alert, we begin to expect eagerly and confidently that we will receive from God great blessings when Christ returns. John 1.16, the Gospel of John 1.16 says, and from the fullness of Christ, we have all received grace upon grace. And we will see the culmination of God's grace when we see him face to face. The brothers and sisters, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't understand or know us is that it did not know him. We are God's children now, you are. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And listen to this charge from John. And everyone who thus hopes in Christ, in him, purifies himself as he is pure. We can only be purified by the blood of Christ. You know, we cannot save ourselves. We are children of wrath unless we have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and we have put our trust in him. But after we have put that trust in him, as we look into his word, as he calls us into this walk of sanctification and continually growing into Christ-likeness, then he will do it. He will do it in you and he will do it in me. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for this day. Lord God, for your promises to us, for your steadfast love for us. Lord, and when we feebly, Lord, seek to walk and to run with you, Lord, you are the one who is beside us, holding us up. You are the one who is strengthening us. You are the one who emboldens us. You are the one who gives us the gift of the Spirit, that Spirit that cries out within us, Abba, Father, where we can come to you, Lord, and find help and grace and mercy in time of need, which is every day for us, O Lord God. Strengthen us, Lord, that we may gird up the loins of our mind, that we may set our hope fully upon that hope that you will bring to us in its fullness in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.